Tonight we simply concentrate on the first canto of the Paradiso. And I begin with a few preparatory thoughts uh, which recap, but I hope gradually move into a new modality. After journeying along a way that has made us look into our hearts and thereby begin to recognize ourselves as imperfect, but at the same time longing for God, we've come to the last great cantica of the Commedia. Here Dante wishes to share with us his deepest thoughts. The memory of a love for a nine-year-old girl who eventually married and died young led Dante to the God of love. It may be argued that this was an, that this was an understanding that was at first confused with the poetic conventions of his time and the philosophical residues of a classical eros. Be that as it may, it was to bring him to Christ, his Saviour and Redeemer. And God always takes us at the stage we are at. He presumes nothing more than the sincerity of our intent. The memory of his great, youth, great youthful love came to him when he was lost in the dark wood of exile and his embittered selfhood. The memory of Beatrice reawoke all that was good in him, his knowledge, his experience of life, his poetic genius, and above all, his yearning for his soul's rest in the will of his Lord and Master. The deep mystery that Dante had to solve in his mind was how, through the gift of grace, could Christ have come to him through his love for Beatrice? She had fulfilled the meaning of her name by coming to him after her death in his time of need. She was indeed the bearer of beatitude. At the climax of the Purgatorio, she became known through Christ as the vehicle granting him sanctifying grace and hence somehow was linked to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. She also had revealed to him deep mysteries through memorable pageants enacted for his enlightenment. Furthermore, he had come to know her as Wisdom, wisdom, Sophia, Sapientia. Now all this is nonsense and useless if we do not attempt or have attempted to follow Christ and know that he comes to us in sacrament and through our neighbour. If we have ever loved, we too have known he comes through the gift of the Holy Spirit, the giver of life and the spirit of truth, 
which proceeds from the Father. See John 14, 16 and 22 and 15, 26. To refine our love through the merits of his own passion and victory. This is not a matter to be taken lightly. Our small love has to grow like the seed of the parable and then quickly the substance, substance of our heart will be known whether it is full of hard stones, drought, weeds or fertile. Hence our long and patient accompanying of Dante through hell and up Mount Purgatory in order to learn from one who has gone on before us. The quality that disturbed Dante's heart most was beauty, the beauty of womanhood, and beauty that, as the Song of Song relates, leads us to union, to marriage. As a wise celibate priest once said to me, the whole of life is about marriage. Now the tradition of the church speaks of the bridal chamber. For example, in the hymns of Paradise of St. Ephraim, in which we find an uncanny resonance in Dante's work, which helps us to understand that Dante is in the flow of an inner tradition. St. Ephraim is about 350 A.D., that's a bit of a guess, but I think I'm more or less right. The world that we can only think of, the world can only think of such matters in sexual terms and is at loss to understand how the fate of our soul is strictly linked to our love, our love for our beloved, our love for our neighbour, for God, a love that ever draws the soul into the marriage with the Lord God. The whole mystery, inner mystery of the church is about this, our marriage and wedding to the Lord God. We too have to become pregnant, divinized by the spirit dwelling in us. We too have to become little Christ's through being made one in the body that is his church. The soul, as we've noted before, becomes Mary-like and thus attracts the Holy Spirit to us, enabling God to be with us, Emmanuel. This is the mystery of the spiritual church that Dante yearned for. Beauty and the knowing of beauty is the essential starting point for eventually knowing paradise. Think for a moment what beauty gives us. Rapture? Yes, but more. It draws light into our lives and heart. Beauty, light. There is the key for reaching out towards paradise. Dante only ascends through beholding Beatrice's beauty. And where does he ascend to? 
the source of all light, the living God. As he figuratively ascends, so does he become transhumanized, transfigured in the light. Dante is teaching that here and there is a grace, is a channel for grace to take up its abode in our hearts. This is opened by true beauty and the light known. This light is like a mirror reflecting the true light of which we are, through the Holy Spirit, invited to become partakers, the eternal beauty. The following verses glean from Psalms 90 and 93 may help. We spend our years as a, as a tale that is told. So teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts to wisdom and let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. Holiness becometh thine house, O Lord, forever. And then also Martin Buber's rendering the divine name is interesting and says exactly what I'm trying to say. I am present here and there. For Dante, this is the teaching of, upon which all his art and poetry rests. His reunion with Beatrice is the mystery of the bridal chamber. Beauty ever opens to more beauty. Love ever increases. Goodness holds ever more dearly the heart. And the Lord takes up his love and leads it, leads it into the infinity of eternal love. Dante is cherished, and in return he cherishes the children of light who increasingly gather round him. Again, these are parallels with St. Ephraim. The more he loves Beatrice, beholds her beauty, and looks into the light of her eyes, the more the living Christ reveals himself to him. Closer he comes to the angels and saints, more he understands the Marian mysteries and more he is sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Now, Canto One, in particular. All that we have said so far is borne out in the first opening line introducing us to paradise. La Gloria, capital letters, di colui che tutto muove, the glory of he who moves all things. Dante writes at length about the opening of his first canto, the Paradiso, in his letter to his patron, Cangrande della Scala, and this we will eventually consider at length. Let us first lay the ground with Archbishop Michael Ramsey's opening observations in his book, The Glory of God and the Transformation of Christ. 
a work which illuminates Dante's thought and sets it in its right perspective. For both men, there's a strict relationship between the glory and the transfiguration. And colleagues of the Anglican Church even voice thoughts precious to Dante, which, as we shall see, he works out as his poem leads us to its luminous conclusion. For example, we have the prayer that we, being delivered from the disquietude of this world, may be permitted to behold the king in his beauty. That is from the American prayer book, or the petition that we may be changed into his likeness from glory to glory. That is from the 1928 prayer book. It is important to add that such themes are worked out to profound implications for the spiritual life in the hymns and prayers of the orthodox Menion. <coughs> that's the, ser- that's an, the service book. <coughs> when considering truth, there is no division in time between the poet and the archbishop, for truth takes us immediately into eternal time. It is always wise for Christians to go back to their Christian roots, and so begins Michael Ramsey in his book on the Transfiguration. Um, The book is called The Glory of God and the Transfiguration of Christ, and was published in London in 1949, but there have been paperback editions ever since, so it should be quite easy to obtain second-hand. The Archbishop points out that our word glory is the translation of the Hebrew kabod. The word comes from a root denoting heaviness or weight, and is used to denote the riches or distinction or prosperity of a person or a nation. Kavod also implies the inward spirit of a man, that is, his true worth, as, for example, in Psalm 108, My heart is fixed, O God. I was seeing, yea, I was seeing, seeing even with my glory. Our glory is potentially our most noble part. Thus, thus, from the word kabod, we may understand the biblical teaching that a person's possessions are an, ex- an extension of his or herself. Our homes are our glory. Indeed, there are extension, an extension of ourselves. We begin to know a person through their pictures, their books, colour schemes, their gardens, all that they surround themselves with, and so forth. Linked to this is the orthodox teaching that we know God through his energies, whereas his essence always remains unknown. Indeed, Dante's Paradiso is all about the Lord God's energies. 
his essence always remains veiled. Likewise, with us, some of us may think that we can be known like a specimen formulated on a pin, to quote T.S. Eliot. But in reality, we can never be wholly known by others. Something always remains unknown. This is so even for those who we love dearly. It is the mystery of love, and that is always new, revealing itself. We are born alone, unknown, and we die alone, even if we're surrounded by our loved ones. We, that inner unknowable self still has to go forward. God's glory, that is, his energy is supreme, thus revealed to us his presence and character. The Old Testament is full of examples of God's theophanies, none more so than the cloud or Shekinah, which descends and leads the chosen people. The Shekinah in the New Testament is the cloud which surrounded our Lord at his transfiguration. There the presence, being and character is manifested in the transfigured body and the presence of our Lord. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well, pre I am well pleased. Hear ye him. Matthew 17.5, Mark 9.7, Luke 9.35. The three apostles present at the transfiguration fell to the ground, blinded by the light. Glory, therefore, <coughs> implies holiness, from which radiates light. The glory of the incarnate Lord, furthermore, makes manifest the mystery of the church and the ministry, mystery of the creation, redemption and last things for in him dwells the fullness of the Godhead. And at the climax of paradise, Dante is interviewed by the three apostles that were present at the transfiguration. In fact, the whole of the paradiso may be said to be a profound meditation on the significance of the transfiguring light. Next heading is the glory as prime mover of all things. The Paradiso begins with a prologue, that is lines 1 to 12, which emphasizes that the glory of God penetrates and reglows throughout the universe, sometimes less here sometimes more there. It, that is, the divine glory, pierces as to essence and reglows as to being. That is a quotation from Dante's letter to Cangrande de la Scala, de la Scala. and 
though he did not know the doctrine of the uncreated energies associated with orthodoxy, you can see his using um, Aristotle and St. Thomas Aquinas has thought to somehow arrive at the same um, teaching. Though the poet has known the light through a revealed mystical experience, he has not the power to relate what he has known. The intellect, or noose, enters so deeply into the mystery the memory cannot retain that which has been known. Dietro la memoria non può ire. Line 9. However, the little he remembers, he assures his readers, will be the substance of his song. Dante is at once apophatic as to the knowledge of God, and at the same time a master of affirmations. I will attempt to paraphrase Dante's explanation of this sequence with the help of his letter um, to his patron, which draws much from St. Dionysius the Areopagite. Every essence, I tend to um, change that in my mind (coughs) for the word energy, except the first has been cause, Dante writes. Dante's intellectual world was that of Thomas Aquinas, but fortunately tinged with Platonism. His thought is clarified by setting it in a more orthodox intellectual context. And this, as I've hinted before, frees the scholasticism of his age to, um, to explain his inner thought. Dante is drawing the contrast between the divine essence and divine, the divine energies. If this were not so, he says, things of necessity would exist per se. And this is impossible, for in the created order all things must interrelate. In other words, for Dante, the relationship of the creation is one of the great mysteries. He insists that to understand the fullness of the creation, we must always refer back to the first cause, the essence, the mystery, which is unknowable. This is precisely what modern science fails to do and takes nature as a box of tricks that can be taken to pieces at will and, quotation marks, improved upon. For man is the mean and measure of all things. Little footnote there. The early Italian humanists, such as Leon Battista Alberti and later Marsilio Ficino, understood man as the mean and measure of all things in the context of sacred geometry. However, the creation was rapidly perceived to be man-centred rather than theocentric. And, as has been pointed out often, the Renaissance is the beginning of the individualism 
that swept through the Western civilization. Coming back to my text now, in the terms of St. Maximus the Confessor, in whom Dante would have rejoiced had he known his writings, the creation is the logos, the creator word, manifesting itself in an infinity of logoi, words. The logoi may be thought of as the radiancy of the glory. We therefore know God through recognizing him in the logoi of creation. And Dante's letter asserts, Wherefore it is evident that every essence and virtue, I substitute those two concepts with the idea of energies, proceed from the first, and that the lower intelligences radiate the light as from the sun, and reflect the rays of what is higher, so that they to what is lower, after the manner of a looking-glass, which Dionysius seemeth to touch upon clearly enough when he speaketh of the celestial hierarchy. And therefore it is written in the book De Causis of Albert, Albert Magnus that every intelligence is full of forms. It is evident then in what manner reason doth manifest that divine light, that is, the divine goodness, wisdom and virtue shineth everywhere. And then Dante immediately proceeds to quote scripture like a good evangelical. The first quotation comes from Jeremiah, chapter 22, line 24. Do I not fill heaven and earth? His second quotation is from Psalm 139. Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up to heaven, behold thou art there. And if I go down to hell, thou art there also. Then he quotes Wisdom 1, verse 7. The Spirit of the Lord filleth the universe. And then Ecclesiasticus um, Chapter 40, 42, 16. And the work thereof is full of the glory of the Lord. And he adds, this was also so for the pagans, and quotes, quotes Lucan from the Pharsalia, book 9, line 580. Jupiter, or Zeus, is whatever thou seest, and wherever thou turnest. And in the Convivio, in book 3, Dante writes, And the divine excellence, or energies, that's my brackets there, or energies, descends upon all things, and otherwise they could not exist. But although his goodness springs from the most simple principle, it is diversely received, in greater or smaller measure, by the things that receive it. 
And so Dante in this first canto is at pains to tell us that the divine glory penetrates the universe and shines on all things, sometimes more, sometimes less. The glory penetrates as to its essence and shines back according to its existence or energy. We may know God through observing the shining back or beauty to the first cause. Dante's concept of shining back is similar to the recognition of St. Maximus of the Logoi of the creation. For example, we know the energies of God supremely in the goodness and virtues of our neighbour. And that is the essential friendship or agape of which Dante speaks throughout his ascent of purgatory and which is the mutual exchange between all the souls in paradise. The argument is straightforward. I behold a flower in all its beauty and the light of beauty known re-glows back to its source which is its creator and first cause. Compare that to Matthew 6, verses 26 to 30. It is harder to see the glory in a slug which has devoured one's seedlings rather than beholding a field of bluebells. Dante insists the glory shines less here and more there. My neighbour shows me love, gratitude, care and so forth. I recognise the true cause of these virtues and rejoice in Christ. See Luke 6 verses 27 to 38. Again, it is hard to see Christ at first in the face of a stranger distort with road rage. Yet easier to know him through acts of kindness and a smile. It is only gradually that we come to learn that the passion is present in all those that we meet. And I recommend you to consider um, Traherne's beautiful prayer in the 86th meditation of the first century in that context. Since the glory is the prime mover of all things, I quote from the letter again, everything moves on account of something it has not and which is the goal of its motion. This in human terms is the Augustinian dictum so beloved to Dante. Our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. Dante applies this yearning to the planets, his heavens, for they too are restless until they may rest in the Empyrean, where movement as such has ceased. You could say that for Dante the the music of the spheres is, is a sort of nostalgia for the eternal rest. It's a wonderful concept something melancholic about it. I think that's why slow movements of 
Mozart's piano concertos often move us far more than the, the allegros. In Convivio 3, 15, Dante writes, And the reason for this, that is the movement of all created things, that as everything by nature desires its own perfection, without this it cannot be content, that is blessed. For man, whatever other, thing, other things he may possess, without this will be filled with a desire which cannot coexist with blessedness, is a perfect thing, and desire imperfect, seeing that no one desires that which he has, but that which he has not, but that which he has not, and here is a manifest defect. Once the planets, or better the heavens, are understood to represent in the deeper significance of the paradiso stages of contemplation, then the inner meaning of the tale opens up its kernel. Pilgrimage is a journey moving through stages of inner growth. Each stage is an enlightenment or a transfiguration. But incomplete as to the fullness of the mystical body, symbolized by the Empyrean. For example, the moon reveals to us our inconstancy, the ebbing and flowing of our inner life. The movement is thus part of our being drawn ever deeper into the divine mystery, a sort of mystical game of hide and seek. God does not reject us, but uses our imperfections in order to draw us to himself. Dante explains that the Empyrean is the heaven, quotation, flaming with fire or heat, not because there is any material fire or heat in it, but spiritual, to wit, holy love or charity. It is into this glory, gloria, that we are all drawn. No wonder Dante recalls the tale of the foolish fawn, fawn Marcias, who challenged Apollo to a music contest. The fawn played his, playing his pipes of pan and Apollo with his seven-stringed harp of the heavens. For his imprudence, Marcius was flayed alive. Interpreted, Marcius is the poet-artist who by his creative work appears to challenge God in order to produce his work. We too are like Marcius with our presumptions and conceits, our selfhood, which in the greater order of things is being stripped from us. Such a pruning of the ego is always painful and humiliating. Dante prays that the power of the Holy Spirit will enter his breast and breathe into his heart and draw out of him the memory of the kingdom he beheld through grace, free of all his unworthiness. It is clear that Dante, as he maintains in his letter, had had a profound religious experience. 
he says his intellect had transcended quotation human bounds in its exaltation his experience or vision reminded him of St. Paul being being unable to explain how he was caught up into paradise and where he had heard things unspeakable, unlawful for man to utter. Vision, revelation, in this sense, is something forgotten of the vision, simply because it was overpowering like the apostles at the transfiguration, falling, covering their eyes, or Ezekiel, likewise, beholding his vision of God. One falls on one's face and hides one's face from the light of the glory. In these matters, Dante notes in his letter and the convivio of the negativity of the invidious, there's a desire to drag the true, the good, and the beautiful down, to slander it. The evil one cannot abide anything higher than his own forsaken level of consciousness. There is no doubt that the paradiso requires empathy on behalf of the reader. We must feel that we too aspire or may even have had a glimmer of what Dante is, a talk, is talking about. The Paradiso may not be viewed as an object for academic interest without losing its substance. One has to enter its heavens, that is, if we wish to share with Dante and enter into the dialogue he offers us. We cannot claim equality, but merely aspiration. The Convivio, Book One, states that we can never claim equality in the spiritual sense. I don't know what Dante would have made of the French Revolution, for example. We can never claim equality in the spiritual sense. We, who are we to claim equality? with St. Paul, St. John, St. Maximus the Confessor, St. Seraphim Azaroff, St. Francis of Assisi, who or whoever. Dante is very precise. In paradise, each soul is perfectly happy with its place or station. The souls of the heaven of the moon, for example, do not exalt themselves above those of the heaven of Mars. All the souls rest in harmony ultimately in the Empyrean and descend to their appropriate heaven in order to talk with Dante. All are perfectly happy as God wills them to be. Dante says that the concept of equality causes envy. Envy causes perverted judgment because it will not allow reason to argue in favour of the thing envied. This is why the prince of this world loved to drag people down to his own level. 
he encourages his minions to become envious of famous people, considering themselves to be equal to the extent that they cannot bear to recognize different levels of awareness or consciousness. Dante writes in his letter, no, it's in the Convivio, always in book one, the envious man then argues, not by blaming him who speaks for not knowing how to speak, but by blaming the material in which he works in order to take away the honour and fame of the speaker, as he who should blame the blade of a sword, not for the sake of condemning the blade, but all the work of the master. Dante seeks the grace to set before us a framework that will hold something of this vision and experience. This we may share, enter into dialogue with, and there learn aspects of a teaching, a tradition. At the end of his letter, Dante quotes St. John. This is life eternal, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Likewise, he quotes Boethius, to see thee is our end. He hopes his work will convey to the reader something of the glory of blessedness, shared by souls in paradise, and draw to an appropriate conclusion his poem in the knowledge of God who fulfills all our longings. In other words, to appreciate the Paradiso, we too, like Marcias, must be drawn from the sheath of our limbs and figuratively ascend with Beatrice and Dante. And may I suggest to you in an aside that this is actually the interpretation of Titian's great last master, late masterpiece, The Flaying of Marcias. The artist, in a sense, challenges God, especially the Renaissance artist, as an individual with his own world to express. Through his presumption, he too is flayed like Marcias. Titian was then close to death and prayed that his soul will be pulled out the sheath of his mortality to know eternity. When I suggested that um, to an art historian at the Great Exhibition when that, at the Royal Academy, um, a few years ago, the Genius of Venice Exhibition, he thought I was crazy, but clearly to me, Titian knew his Dante. And as, as we saw when we studied um, Botticelli's drawings, Dante had a whole new life during the Renaissance and reappreciation. Here, St. Ephraim's understanding may help. He too sets paradise on a high mountain where is to be found the tree of life. He 
describes paradise like a wreath, quote, that encircles the whole creation, rather like the halo of the moon. We ascend nowhere. We simply learn to see the creation in its true light and know God as our true end, towards whom, through grace, we move by setting out on our pilgrimage. Think of the hermit in his cave. He goes nowhere, but his heart is moving, moving in prayer and contemplation. And ultimately, what is the cell or cave? It is our body, and we all have to learn to live with our bodies, for they are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Lines 37 to 44. La lucerna del mondo, the lamp of the world, that is the sun, the emblem in the heavens of the light by which all things grow and have light, casts on this world, says Dante, four circles with three crosses and conjoined with better stars. These are the circles of the equator, the zodiac, and the equinoctial collier. It is a dry, uh, if a diagram is consulted in one of the better commentaries, it would be seen that Dante is imagining that there are eight directions of space which invisibly bind our world in the forms of crosses, the sign of, of, of victory. Eight, of course, is the symbol of moving from one level to a higher level of consciousness. As in music, the eighth note commences a new scale. The word scale is from the Italian scala, ladder. For the early commentators, the three crosses and the four circles represented the theological and cardinal virtues conjoined and working for our salvation. Hence, the sun, figuratively speaking, sun in the sky, that sun, is the source of all virtue. ...in their celestial cycles. Marinzi's poem leads us to, into understanding Dante's understanding of the relationship between the angelic intelligences and the heavens. But Thus, the quadrivium is concerned essentially with a student's illumination, not with the acquisition of encyclopedic knowledge, but, as we know, Dante's knowledge uh, was immense, but essentially illumination. What's the good of having entrance? And both are still in the earthly paradise. Like St. John's eagle of vision, Beatrice is looking at the sun. Dante follows her gaze. 
it as if it is as if a ray of light strikes downwards and is instantly reflected back. The imagery relates to the divine energy returning, re-glowing back to its source through beauty. Dante compares this to the pilgrim soul that longs to return to its true home. The ray of light is like the sanctifying grace penetrating the heart and awakening the, lo the life of love, just as the material sun awakens the growth of plants and produces eventual seeds of life. One might add here that in the spiritual life we hold nothing. Love descends to us, springs up in our hearts. We are embraced by love. But above all, love must flow through us. By gazing on Beatrice, um, beauty of course, and beauty is here understood to embrace wisdom and all the virtues Beatrice has come to represent, especially the revelation of Christ in our neighbour. And by gazing on Beatrice, Dante begins to be transhumanised. In lines 70 to 72, he emphasises that it is impossible to describe the mystery of the transfiguring light or glory, gloria, to which all Christians are called. The only way he may convey is in images of what has begun to happen to him, is that it was as if he was lifted up by grace to the heavens, towards their harmony, the music of the spheres, the language of the angels. Lines 73 to 75. Stuero sol di me quel che creasti novelamente, amor che il ciel governi, tu sai che col tuo nome, tu con tuo lume mi levasti. Whether I was but part of me which thou didst create last, O love that rulest the heavens, thou knowest, who with thy light didst lift me up. The true light and fire of love to which Dante is ascending, as we have noted, is the Empyrean, the highest heaven, where he will eventually behold the celestial rose, the rose of consciousness. This deep mystery of love torments in hell purifies in paradise. In paradise, the light and fire of love become ever more transfiguring as Dante ascends. That is, as he contemplates the eternal verities of the creation and of life. In St. Seraphim of Zeroff's teaching, he is acquiring the Holy Spirit as opposed to being bewitched by psychic delusions. 
Even so, Dante lightens himself to a babe babbling feverishly. Line 102. The canto concludes with Beatrice teaching her lover like a patient mother. Lines 103 to 142. She re-emphasizes the teaching that we have considered at the outset of this canto. All things have order amongst themselves, and this fact makes the universe like God. That is, this orderliness is a form which stamps God's likeness on the manifold. There is total order and harmony. And as Singleton poignantly remarks at this stage in his commentary, I quote, At the end, when the wayfaring Dante will see God face to face, he will, in fact, see in the depth of that vision the whole universe as if it were bound with love into a single volume. Here I would point out in disagreement with um, Singleton that Dante does not see God face to face for no living creature could ever behold the deity of live and live. What Dante apprehends is a profound symbolic sequence at the climax of his great poem as to the nature of God. The important thought is that the creation is held by God and is bound, quote Dante, with love into a single volume. It is the harmony and total order set before us here and now which is there for our contemplation and enlightenment. Again, the crucial Psalm 19 instructs us in this mystery. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Before such a display awaiting our recognition, we discover the Lord's statutes and commandments intertwined and are at one. The world is a sacrament, if only we had eyes to see right. The natural world calls out to us to regain the Adamic vision and to become wise stewards, stewards expert gardeners of the beauty about us. In this we are called to pray. In this we are called to pray to be cleansed of our secret faults and presumptuous sins and to yearn that the words and meditation of our hearts may be always acceptable in God's sight for he is our strength and redeemer. Without this inner cleansing we are but exploiters, ransackers of beauty. The mystery of the Holy Trinity insistante is the signature of all things, just as the great poem throughout is written in the terza rima, in respect of the imprint on all true creation. The motive force within the manifold is order and form. 
sorry, I start again. The motive force within the manifold, its order and forms, is love, natural love, an instinct in all things. There is a divine eros that holds all things together. And when we fail to respect this, we fall out of harmony with the creation. All things, angels, men, women, animals, stones, flames, says Dante, according to their destiny, yearn to find rest in their true end. God's excellence flows to all things, each thing receiving according, quoted, quoting the Convivio, Book 3, to the fashion of its power and of its being. Dante, in the Convivio, gives the example here of the sun. We see the light of the sun, which is one, derived from a single source, diversely received by several bodies, certain substances, because they have large measure of the clearness of the transparent mingled in their composition. So as soon as the sun sees them, they become so luminous that their aspect consists of the multiplication of the light in them, and they cast a great splendor from themselves upon other substances, as are gold and certain stones. Dante is teaching the more that we note that the glory shines visually more here unless there, the more we enter into the mystery of the glory. For example, there's a difference between gold, silver, brass, copper, lead. Each sign shines back the light of the sun according to its destiny in the order of things. When the light and warmth of our sun is understood to be but a pallid reflection of the love which upholds all things, then something of the supreme excellence of the creation awakens in our limited minds. At this point it is good to recall that at the heart of the whole poem, Virgil spoke of love, true natural love, which cannot err contrasted to the gift of free will given to men and women, which sets us in a special relationship of responsibility. As in the Purgatorio Cantos 16, 17 and 18, the heart of the whole Divina Commedia. In lines 112 and 14, Dante metaphorically describes this wholeness of all things as a great sea upon which the creatures, impelled by natural love, are like ships driven by different instincts within the mystery of love to travel to different ports and havens. For example, in the Convivium, book 3, he writes, certain plants almost always gather along the watercourses, and certain on the ridges of mountains, and certain on the slopes and at the foot of hills, the which, if we transplant them, either, either die altogether, or live as if in gloom, like things parted from the place dear to them. 
And consider St. Augustine in his Confessions, Book 13, Chapter 9. Such thoughts are fundamental to Dante's insights. St. Augustine writes, In thy gift we rest, then we enjoy thee. Our rest is thy gift, our life's place. Love lifts us up thither, and by thy good spirit advances our lowliness from the gates of death. In thy good pleasure lies our peace. Our body, with its lumpishness, strives towards its own place. Weight makes not downwards only, but to its own place also. The fire mounts upwards, the stone sinks downward. All things pressed by their own weight go downwards to their proper places. Oil poured in the bottom of the water is raised above it. Water poured on oil sinks the bottom of the oil. They are driven by their own weights to seek their own places. Things a little out become unquiet. Put them in order again and they become quieted. My weight is my love. Remember here what Archbishop um, Ramsey said about kabod, glory. My weight is my love. And by that I am carried, whithersoever I be carried. We are inflamed by thy gift and are carried upward. We wax hot within and we sing a song of degrees. The song of degrees, for those who don't know, do not know, they're, the, they're Psalms 120 to 134, the songs of pilgrimage in the Psalter. We glow inward with thy fire, and with thy good fire, and we go because we go, because we go upward to the peace of Jerusalem. For glad I was, when as they said to me, we will go into the house of the Lord. There will thy good pleasure settle us, that we may desire no other thing but to dwell there for ever. Our true gravitational force, Dante is teaching, is not downwards to the earth. You know, the concept of man, the mean and measurable things, to which we are destined to cast back our mortal remains. In this sense, dust we are, and to dust we return. But our true gravitational force is upwards to God and his love. See um, Psalm um, 90. Now we may grasp Dante's imagery of ascent in its true light. His ascent with Beatrice is quite simply an image of our true gravitational force. Love, our true resting place, that is. In theological terms, that is our end or purpose, 
It is as if God, as an archer, aims us through natural love at himself. Thy will be done. Any swerving away from the target implies a faulty arrow. False pleasure diverts us from the true target. You'll find all this imagery in Dante's text. The Old Testament often uses the imagery of the potter and his wheel and the clay. We are the clay, far too often poor clay, and a lumpish material will not produce a good pot, and dead pots in a pottery are flown away of the scrap heap. Thus all depends on free will and the love we elect to pursue. This, the pursuit of our elective love should be in harmony, says Dante, with natural love. Our upward journey, the arrow potentially shot by God himself to himself, is therefore rooted in our desire and contemplation. The problem of divergence lies in our will. Only when our will is harmonised with God's will for us, and every person is different, there is no set pattern, do we find peace. It is through the life of prayer that Dante's images of the arrow and the clay become truly meaningful. Often when settling to our morning or evening prayers, we are conscious of God's will, that natural turning of the soul to the deep mystery of love. It is as if we would arise and go to our beloved, but almost simultaneously we become consciousness of the heaviness within us, even the reluctance, as if we would hold on to ourselves, that is the arrow or the clay and not let the soul speed to its destiny. Held by the gravity of the self, we are, as Beatrice points out to her lover, unable to, unable to realise that in the inner life it is easier to rise to God as a stream rushing down a mount, from a mountain. In the spiritual life, there is another polarity, another opposite to the centre of worldly gravity. We have to let go all that is leaden and heavy within us, let it sink away by its own gravity. Of course, the world does not understand these opposite pools of gravity, for it has not experienced metanoia, the turning of the deepest centre within ourselves to the Lord our conversion. Metanoia is better than the word conversion. Metanoia means a turning. Our Lord speaks of the two gravitational pulls, for example, in Luke 12, verses 3 to 7. Therefore, whatsoever ye have spoken in darkness shall be heard in the light and that which ye have spoken in the ear in closets shall be proclaimed on the housetops. And I say unto you, my friends, be not afraid of them that kill the body, and after that have no more than they can do, 
but I will, will, will forewarn you whom ye shall fear. Fear him which after he hath killed hath power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two farthings, and not one of them forgotten before God? That's the divine glory. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, ye are, ye are of more value than many sparrows. Um, incidentally, um, this is often a point, the pointed gospel to be read the Feast of Martyrs in the Orthodox Church. There is a red martyrdom and a white martyrdom. All Christians are called to white martyrdom. That is, victory in the spiritual life, the overcoming of the negative, the purely earthly pull of gravity. No wonder Beatrice says to the pilgrim soul, Maraviglia sarebbe in Privo d'impedimento, giuti fossi assiso, come a terra chiete fuoco vivo. Lines 139 to 141. Nay, but if thou from every hindrance free should hug the ground, that would be a surprise, a stillness in a quick flame on earth would be. During all this discourse, Beatrice has been dressed in red the colour of love and fire true desire a will in harmony with the divine love that is why in the last line she turns her head once more heavenwards quote pure and prepared to leap up to the stars the arrow is aimed at last the heart from which all love radiates. <laughs>